Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a podcast on law and policy with the Hoover Institution's Richard Epstein and me, Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. We're recording this in early December, our last episode of the year, and there's much to discuss, so I will jump right into it. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I mean, and believe me, there is a lot to discuss. The year will go out not with a whimper, but a bang. Well, the court certainly issued a, uh, a prominent opinion just days ago on December 10th. They issued their decision in Whole Women's Health versus Jackson, uh, better known as the Texas Abortion Law case. The Supreme Court closed the door to some of the uh, aspects of the lawsuit challenging Texas's statute, but left the door open to at least one challenge to Texas's abortion law. Richard, I'm curious, what there's been some debate about what the court actually decided in the case. How do you understand what the court decided to allow and, and what the court decided well, you're to You're asking the it? wrong guy to some extent. Um, I think in essentially what happens is that if there was some narrow exception, which I actually forgotten, uh, the basic implication they have is as follows. You are not allowed under American rules of standing to get yourself into a situation where you could make an abstract challenge and tell you you're subject to a personal attack. And so um, some people have said what well, this is complete lawlessness and uh, what the Supreme Court really said is that the law of Texas is above the nation and that's treating it as an argument as though you could never do anything. Uh, the more accurate description of what happened in that particular case, I think we all know, is that they said you have to be sued before you can stop it. Uh, I'm not particularly happy with that because this goes back to my views of standing um, more generally, which I've talked about many times in other places. Um, I've always thought that the standing requirement that's construed by the United States Supreme Court has been essentially a mistake. And what I mean by that is that they require that you show these discrete and concrete injuries to a particular person. That works fine if you're talking about an automobile crash, but when you're talking about institutional arrangements where somebody is said to act ultra-virus, that is beyond the power of an institution, the principal rules of equity have always said that a given person inside the organization can challenge ultra-virus rules and doesn't have to show any kind of discrete industry injury. What happens is he has to show he's a member of the shareholder class or the citizen class that's relevant and that he's kind of bringing this action on behalf of everybody else with a kind of an implicit representation theory. Uh, the way in which this works is he can bring the suit. If there's somebody else who wants to bring the suit, they have to decide who's going to be the representative point which I think is perfectly fine. And then the way it's done financially is if he loses, he has to bear his own cost. But if he wins from this stuff, what happens is he could get some recompense from the body. In this particular case, I don't think it's a financial situation. It's an entitlement situation. But I see no reason why it is that if there's something hanging out there which could exercise an interim effect so that people are reluctant to engage in certain kinds of activities for fear that they'll be subject to a personal bounty hunters. It's perfectly sensible for the Supreme Court to say, look, uh, we're going to start to examine this particular situation and decide that bounty hunters are not going to be appropriate under these cases. Uh, that what happens is that the state has to maintain its monopoly of force under these cases, because otherwise what's going to happen is things like this are going to proliferate and everybody is going to be held hostage. What they did is not to worry about the institutional feature when they had the individual requirement on standing. Uh, what they decided is that you had to worry only about the question of whether this guy has been hit. But I don't think that's an appropriate situation in government. 
where the rule ought to be, if there's a kind of a systematic peril, there has to be some kind of remedial device. So to me, the problem in this case is the problem of Frothingham and Mellon, in which it was decided back in 1923 or so, uh, that if you have a case in which taxpayers or states want to challenge federal government activities for being ultra-virus, they couldn't do it. And not only that, there was no way that you can actually find to do it afterwards. So in this case, at least you could do it later. But I think later is too late. So I am not particularly sympathetic with this particular result. I would have much rather see them duke it out on the merits, uh, decide whether and to what extent uh, this thing really made any sense. So I've been an opponent of this from the beginning. I don't want to see it here. I don't want to see it anywhere else. And so I thought, to me, the Supreme Court, as is typical with the Supreme Court, it basically works within the framework of its settled um, precedents, and they don't want to put themselves to the position where they rethink the entire system, which in this case is what I think is necessary. Do you agree with my modest assessment, Adam, or do you think that we really should be doing something else? Well, I, I have to admit, I'm sympathetic to the, the 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 sort of the instincts for judicial restraint that that inform a lot of the precedents that the court's working with here. Let me just unpack what I see are the three key issues here, and, and you touched on a lot of them. One, as you mentioned, is standing. Right, is asking who's actually injured here, and what power does the court have to remedy it in light of who's actually been sued here. Related to that is the sovereign immunity issue, right? That's sort of the core of the case. States generally have sovereign immunity. An exception to that is the century-old ex parte young uh, precedent that allows plaintiffs to preemptively sue uh, for an injunction against state officials, general executive officials, who would be tasked with enforcing an unconstitutional law. And then third, and related to all of those things, is just the the pleading standards in the aftermath of some recent Supreme Court cases, including the Clapper case involving, I think it was NSA surveillance, where the court said to 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 survive a motion to dismiss, you do need to plead with particularity some reasonably likely course of events um, that makes the the dispute concrete enough to 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 justify uh, judicial judicial involvement. It's it's a it, it sort of it works in conjunction with the standing issues we just identified. And so all three of those issues were at stake here. First, the the purely private or almost exclusively private enforcement mechanism, and I say almost because the court did see uh, uh, some state uh, enforcement role in there. That's why they, they allowed part of the suit to proceed. But by getting rid of virtually all executive branch enforcement within the state of Texas, they intentionally deprived would-be plaintiffs of natural defendants to sue. And so you saw the plaintiffs sort of groping about looking for, for plaintiffs to sue, whether it was courthouse clerks, yeah, whether ridiculous. it was state medical licensing board officials. They tried to sue the, the attorney general, and, and that part of the suit failed. But they were casting about looking for somebody to sue so that they could raise in court these constitutional issues. Um, I think the court basically got it right there, that Ex parte Young always has been best understood as, as, a, as involving just exclusively executive officials in the state, not the state's judicial officers. The dissenters tried to say, well, here the clerks really are acting more like law enforcers. I think they were stretching it too far there. I think the court majority basically got it right. I agree. Yeah, so related to that, with respect to standing, it's not clear, first of all, who has an injury. Um, 
as you say, it's really one of in terrorum effect. As it happens by coincidence, for totally different reasons, I was reading this morning the old case of Lee versus Weissman, the, the graduation prayer case, where the court said that, that, uh, that, that a student feeling psychological coercion uh, had an establishment cause claim against the school. And I'm reading Justice Scalia's dissent where he's, he's uh, mocking the psychological coercion test. Well, reading that, in the run-up to our podcast, I was just amused by the, or sort of interested in the, the, the analogy to what we see here, the, as you pointed out, the interorum effect of people basically deterring, feeling deterred from either giving abortions or, or, or either providing abortions or seeking abortions or assisting abortions because they just don't know what the legal consequences of that might be, which again is intentional. And again, bound up in all that, um, the Clapper standard for pleadings. It's just not clear to me how they've, they've actually pleaded a case at this point without any real evidence, not even a real allegation, that someone somewhere is seeking to affirmatively enforce the law. So I think the majority basically got it right. And I wonder what's left of that last part of the case involving the medical licensing officers. The court left the door open to suits against them. I'll be curious to see what the district court and the Fifth Circuit do. I think the district court uh, and certainly the Fifth Circuit will really push the plaintiffs to show how the suit against the licensing officer survives, if not a motion to dismiss, then a motion for summary judgment, where they, where the plaintiffs would really need to offer evidence in the in in, in terms of documents, declarations, other things, actual evidence showing that the, the the possibility of enforcement against the plaintiffs is palpable. So I think the court got it right, but that's because in part I'm reading the decision a little narrowly. Yeah, look, I agree in terms of the traditional doctrine, it quote-unquote got it right. And if you remember, I started in saying I think this case is a classic illustration of why it is traditional doctrine gets the standing rule. Um, if the part that I forgot having to do with the medical licensors is the only thing left, uh, this is deck chairs on the Titanic as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the sensible way to preach this is to bring a suit and try to get the Lord struck down facially and bring it against the state of Texas, which passed it. And then anybody who wants to join in on this thing could do so. Uh, I don't think this is the kind of case for which ex parte young really ought to be appropriate. If you recall, it was a rate regulation case uh, that was involved in that particular situation. And there was sovereign immunity, and they tried to get around it to get an examination on the merits by suing the attorney general. And in that particular case, they allowed it because otherwise you would never be able to get the kind of challenge that you needed with the basic statute. That's the kind of situation I think that we have here. Here. So as far as I am concerned, um, I want this thing to be resolved. I think it's very bad to have laws on the books that have interim effect. Um, I think it's utterly impossible to figure out which private party you're going to sue. And then if it turns out that this situation works, if I were uh, people who are on the side of the Texas law, I would never want anybody to sue because the interim effect will continue to go. 
and they're going to get all the benefits that they want of slowing the process down, and they're not going to have to actually bring a particular lawsuit to do it. So I think the institutional incentives that are created by this are, are really quite bizarre, and I think it's going to be bizarre no matter what the substantive issue is. So as I said, I, you know, I agree with your analysis uh, within the case law as it currently exists. One of the things that I'm kind of not sad about, but certainly a realist about, is it's very difficult to get the Supreme Court in any particular case to re-examine its own fundamental premises across the board. And this is just a perfect illustration where there was no first principles analysis anywhere in this opinion. It was essentially stripping it down and then having um, uh, this case decided that way it did for these narrow grounds. And this proves the basic point. If you start from the wrong place, i.e. from Frothingham and similar cases, you're not going to get to the right place. And so what this statute did was very expensive cleverly exploited the inability to have institutional challenges to laws which have serious constitutional defects, uh, facial challenges, and that's why you get this kind of weird predicament. Uh, Adam, do we know, by the way, is anybody ever going to sue under this statute or not? Oh, you mean any plane, any bounty hunter yeah, plane? I mean, is, there gonna, I mean, is, there, is somebody going to actually go for the bounty? Uh, you know, never say never, right? I don't think anybody, I don't, I don't think any suits I'm sure some suits have been filed somewhere. None of the suits, no suits have proceeded. And I think we'll, it'll be interesting if no suits get any traction after six months, will the interim effect actually decline? You know, Richard, I mean, you raise a couple of good points there. Just to say, first, I like I said, I'm much more sympathetic, much more in favor of the court's standing jurisprudence, although I think it's always worth revisiting it. And I know there's a new Law Review article out maybe by Kevin Newsom, um, sort of reconsidering standing doctrine and what the Constitution's cases and controversies provision really entails. But on the whole, I think Scalia generally got it right. I'm wary of the courts becoming just sort of open-ended you know, constitutional review boards, and, and the jurisdictional limits on the court are important in that respect. But that said, I agree totally with your, your, your wariness of the statute. I wrote a piece for our friends at Commentary a couple months ago on the Texas statute, and the last half of the article really did focus on the big separation of powers concerns I have with a statute like this that really, first of all, outsources enforcement to the plaintiff's bar out of the executive branch, and second of all, creates just, I mean, I keep using your term, um, the term you initially used, because it's exactly right, the interorum effect, just this, this haze of uncertainty, that's, that's intended to deter people's actions in a very passive-aggressive way where the government isn't enforcing the laws against you. They're just trying to intimidate people. And I, I, I'm very pro-life, and I think Roe v. Wade was wrong, and I hope it goes away soon. Um, but that said, to the extent that Roe v. Wade and, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey still govern us, I'm very, very wary of statutes like this. As it happens, my commentary article focused on Ju Chief Justice Roberts' own wariness of statutes like this. He started writing about this in the late 80s or early 90s, right after he left the Justice Department. Um, and so I was not at all surprised to see him give voice to similar concerns uh, here in this, in this case in, in dissent. Now, we see what's happening in California. The governor is now threatening similar laws against, say, I guess it's gun rights in, in California. What do you make of that? 
Well, I mean, that's a, an even weirder suit because it's not exactly clear what the particular things that they're going to try to enjoin. That is, we do know, for example, that the sale of um, guns have generally been illegal if they're licensed by the federal government. We know that public nuisance suits against gun makers have generally failed pretty much around the world, although they uh, were brought with a great deal of a plum. Uh, so exactly what is it that you're threatening to do that would be illegal? What is the thing equivalent to uh, having an abortion if the activity that you're talking about one is whose legality has already been established? So I'm not quite sure what it is that he's supposed to do in that particular case. I, I can't quite figure out what the wrong he's trying to do. Uh, I, what I do want to say is a comment about something you made earlier. Uh, I don't think that this is an abstract dispute. Uh, what you're trying to do essentially at this particular point is to get a law off the books. They're saying, I do not want the statute to remain. Uh, this is not like the advisory opinion that John Jay refused to uh, give to George Washington about the legality of his treaties with France, where he had you know, a very long and complicated list of questions without any particular situation. And so if you're trying to make a facial challenge of a particular statute, which is what this is, it seems to me that anybody should be in a position to do it. If you're trying to make an as-applied statute, then all the requirements that you make, having to indicate that there's some probability that a suit being brought against you or one that's already been brought, I think they're appropriate. But I think facial challenges should be governed by completely different rules. That was my point with respect to the Maternity Act. Uh, there was a very powerful spending cost challenge, at least back in the 1920s, against the statute which wanted in the name of the general welfare of the United States to make payments to um, uh, married women after the birth of their children and so forth. Um, I think the statute actually failed under the jurisprudence of that time if you got to the merits under the spending clause, but there was no way that you could do it. And in this particular case, it's just going to hang fire. Uh, will we allow it in six months? That's a weird form of jurisdiction. Um, are, are other states going to try this stuff? It is not a good way to run a legal system uh, to have a doctrine of standing institutionalize uncertainty, which has, to use our favorite phrase, this interim effect. So I just, I don't like the way in which they've approached it. Uh, and that's because I don't like the way they've approached standing generally. I think that the standing in equity has always been designed to give you a challenge where there's not a concrete loss to a particular person, but a diffuse loss, which comes from the application of a statute, which is on its face unconstitutional. If you go back to Frothingham, uh, uh, there were several points made about that, one of which was that in England they don't have anything like this under their standing doctrine, and that under New York state law, for example, a challenge is to a, a municipal statute for being ultra-virus could be made by any citizen of the particular locale. A southern one was asked to distinguish these cases, and he just got it exactly backwards. He said, well, we have many more people here than there are there. Uh, the difference between 100,000 and a million people really doesn't matter when you're talking about uh, uh, class actions. But in any event, uh, it's going to be even more difficult to organize people as the group gets larger. So it's more important that you have these representative suits. You don't need them for closed corporations, but you do need them for public corporations, which is the analogy in this case. So I thought he got it wrong. And then you go for the next well 100 years now, and you keep embedding the same mistake. And now we're seeing it. It was what Jonathan Mitchell who concocted this statute. He's something of a genius. You know that, right? I mean, in his ability to manipulate these systems. I just think that I don't want to play within the system. I think we have to change the rules overall of what the system is and how it operates.
you know, if we keep going on about standing, we'll change the podcast name to Standing Disagreements. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, I, but I do just, just fundamentally disagree with, with your instinct here. Um, I, I agree that what Texas has done is creating real uncertainty and trying to leverage that uncertainty to carry out policies uh, without the normal process. And, and by the way, when I see that, uh, from the start when I saw that, it reminded me a lot of what we see day-to-day in the administrative state with guidance yes, yeah, guidance documents and, and other sort of passive-aggressive forms of, of administration where the government says, well, this isn't binding, but it's it, everybody knows that it's it's really, in effect, binding. So I've, I have no shortage of, of qualms with the Texas mechanism, and I voiced them from the start. But your approach to the resolution of these issues creates entirely different kinds of uncertainty, right? It's the uncertainty that would surround any law as soon as it's enacted, knowing that the the courthouse doors are then immediately open for anybody, practically anybody to file lawsuits challenging their constitutionality. Well, they have to have, I mean, I would only do this for facial challenges, ultravirus. And one of the things about it is if the challenges are weak, a summary judgment could come very early on. And since we're talking about this as a representative suit, it would basically be binding on the rest of the class. So I don't think there's any more uncertainty in this particular context than there is when you have very dubious actions done by corporate officers, which are challenged by derivative suits. If the suit is good, it should shut it down. If not, it should be squashed immediately. I, I don't see that as a problem because I think this problem is really big and the other one is mainly hypothetical. Um, I've yet to see cases where people bring frivolous suits, even under state law, uh, when they have the general standing doctrine. So I don't think the abuse is there because we've had enough precedent. There's no abuse in England of this particular sort. I think what we really have to do is to uh, come to the fact that uh, if we I think you hit it on the nail. The the guidance is a completely abusive practice because it isn't de facto enforcement and you can't challenge it on its face. That's what we're having here. And we're going to continue to have a rash of this stuff until the Supreme Court is going to allow a facial challenge. I I don't think it's that hypothetical. I mean, one of the reasons why, why, why your old friend Antonin Scalia was so exercised about these issues in the 80s and 90s is that in the 1970s, you saw effective governance dragged down over and over again by the threat of lawsuits under uh, either nebulous um, constitution, theories of constitutional right or nebulous theories of administrative law and other things. So that it's no coincidence that Justice Scalia was so focused on standing. Oh, I, but I think he was right. But the, the biggest case he wrote about in the Supreme Court review was the Vermont Yankee case. That was not yep. a standing case, right? right? I mean, what happens is the Supreme Court started to put one requirement after another on the way in which these various reviews were undertaken. And, and Scalia eventually blew up because he thought that the whole process had lost the, any kind of internal integrity. And he was right about that. I mean, this was the four horsemen he was fighting against. Against. I mean, uh, these are names lost to the present, but Skelly Wright and Carl McGowan and Harold Levingthal and, and David Bassalon, right? They basically shut down the American nuclear industry by finding that nothing that you did was going to be sufficient for what had to be done. Um, and, and, you know, if you get bad judges like that, I don't think any standing doctrine will save you. And in fact, they just, they invalidated everything. They invited these lawsuits. It wasn't trying to put them off. Uh, and then they decided them incorrectly. But I think one of the ways that are, yeah, uh, one of the timeless issues in 
American government is what Bic your, your old uh, teacher Alexander Bickel called the counter-majoritarian difficulty. I'd say it a little more differently. It's how do we maintain our government's Republican, small r Republican character and also the rule of law. And this is the tension that goes all the way back to, to Madison and Hamilton's writings in defense of the Constitution and before that. And frankly, I think one of the prudential mechanisms that helps to ensure that balance is preventing um, totally dis people with no real stake other than their general interest in, in constitutional issues to bring lawsuits challenging laws. I think it's good to leave in place the requirement that only people genuinely affected um, by the laws bring the lawsuits. Of course, there's always a pile-on of amicus briefs and so on to a point where Supreme Court litigation sometimes looks almost more like notice and comment rulemaking. Um, but I think it's good to at least leave that small burden on the side of the plaintiffs um, and thus on the, side of the on the side of the courts to justify judicial intervention uh, in in the rest of the workings of Republican government. Standing doctrine doesn't ask too much, but I think it asks enough, um, and I, I would be worried if it didn't ask anything. Um, well, I'm not asking nothing. I'm saying in order for you to challenge something, you have to be, for example, in Frothingham, you have to be a citizen or a taxpayer. In the municipal government cases, if it's the city of Troy, New York, that's doing something wrong, you can't bring a suit if it turns out you're a resident of the city of Buffalo. Uh, so, I mean, there are these kinds of constraints. Let me just reminisce for a second about Alex Bickle, because more than anybody else, it was his teaching that actually persuaded me that he was 100% wrong when I was a third-year student. So, at that time, there was a case called Flass v. Gardner, later becoming Flass v. Cohen, and it had to do with the question of whether or not anyone had standing under the Establishment Clause to challenge a gift of government property to a private owner. And the only people who might want to challenge it under the traditional doctrine is somebody who had the second highest bid for the property, who wanted to claim that there was some irregularity with respect to the first bid so that they were entitled to get it. That would be what you could bring. But everybody understands what the real issue was in all of these cases is to whether or not this constitutes an illegal aid to education. And eventually they created a rather artificial exception to the general standing doctrine to allow it against legislation, although eventually not against executive action, which did all of this stuff. So we were having this class and the hypothetical got put forward is, is there anybody who's entitled to bring an action against the city of New York if they decide to create a bishop of New York? who has no official powers, but essentially has all sorts of symbolic situation. And Bickle throughout the entire situation uh, kept on saying that nobody was entitled to sue with respect to this thing because they didn't have a discrete injury. There was no threat of anything going on. And, you know, everybody in the class said, my God, the symbolic associations that come with this, making it appear as though the city of New York actually endorses a particular religion, particularly horrendous, somebody ought to be able to knock it out. And, you know, that debate I was a little bit passive compared to many of the other people in the room who are really vehement. Uh, but I came to the conclusion that Bickle was wrong under these cases, that what happened is this was not a situation where you want these sorts of symbolic things to happen. And it's just an abstract dispute. What you want to do is decommission the office. You're asking for relief against these guys. And anybody should bring it. And anybody who comes on the other side should be able to file amicus briefs or perhaps even join as a party. So I basically think that the equitable rules that are used in derivative suits of one kind or another are a sufficient protection in this case.
but I think, in effect, the interim effect has to be regarded as a kind of a little injury to everybody. And so if you have 10,000 doctors who are sitting there quaking in fear, it seems to me that's as important an issue that you have as opposed to one doctor who's received a letter from the government that he will be prosecuted unless his office shuts down. So I'm not, I, I'm on the other side of this one. I, don't, I, I think it's reasonable, but I think that's what this case really starts to stand for. Uh, and, you know, I, it's not to me that the stench language or anything else that's really important. I do think uh, that when there's an interim effect, somebody should be able to come forward and force the state to defend it. Otherwise, we will see a repetition of statutes like this. So I think we're going to basically continue to disagree. There are other cases where I think you're clearly right on the remote requirement. I, I don't want people to bring lawsuits to say that the United States government is duty-bound to take something against climate change because it has disparate impact upon children or minority groups. I think those lawsuits are crazy. Um, but then those are the ones that ought to be decided on exactly the principle you mentioned, namely that this is such an improbable concatenation of events. There's so many other interventionist ways you could do with these problems through institutional arrangements that a private lawsuit just doesn't make any sense. And so I, it's not that I want to say that every private lawsuit ought to be done, but I do think certain kinds of things to facial challenges really are a perfectly appropriate way in which to try to conduct the legal system. So that's where I stand. I wish uh, I could have been your classmate in that class. Um, oh, it was a great I could, class. I wish I wish I could have taken anything, any class from 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 Bickle, uh, who I generally I think generally got things right. I, I think about was him a lot. He what? He was past it when he taught us. It was an interesting man. I will tell you another story about Bickle. One of the other people in this class was Michael Barone, um, from Michigan. And, you know, you're sitting in a class with a guy and you sort of look at him and say, you know, this man will be the foremost political journalist in the next 20 years or whatever. Because even at that time, he was completely well-formed. And so Bickle got going on reapportionment, saying, in effect, that it really had no effect and there were a lot of doctrinal things that were left loose and why you worried so much about it. And he actually liked the kind of standing arguments in that case. And so the, he, when he made the argument that nothing happened, Michael Baroni raised his hand and said, well, I'm from Michigan. And it turned out that when we had the next elections after reapportionment, something like, you know, 50% of the people were voted out of office. And there's a kid in the back of the room named uh, Wood, I Jeff Wood, I guess his name was. And he said the same thing happened in, in Florida. And Bickle gave an answer, which never, never, I mean, still stuns me. He looked around. He was clearly wrong. Instead of saying it, he said, there must have been a lot of lazy politicians in those two states, quote, unquote. I mean, he was, he was a guy, I mean, he was in some sense a sophist. Uh, because he got himself very locked into positions. Um, and there's no question that the least dangerous branch was a great book when it came out in 1962, right? Uh, but, you know, there were certain weaknesses with it, some of which were pointed out by Jerry Gunther and others that kind of emerged in the reapportionment case. Bickle was not prepared to move on that. And and so what happened is there was this really kind of tough dynamic with a very strong class sitting in front of him uh, and, and him trying to figure out how it is he pretended these positions. I thought he should have bent a little bit more. So he had an enormous influence on me.
I have to say, but not in the way in which he attended. I thought that my classmates usually got the better of him when we come to some of these rather heated debates. Yeah. Well, and, and when, when and one last question. When were you in his class? Uh, this was in the spring of 1968, uh, yeah. which was yeah. a tempestuous time. Remember, this is when Eugene McCarthy was challenging Lyndon Johnson, eventually deposed him. Then there was the New Hampshire primary and so forth. Uh, so... Emotions were generally at a boil, independent of his class, and the passive virtues of Alexander Bickle did not go particularly well. I agreed with him on many of the points of what he wanted to say. I mean, it wasn't as though it was on everything, uh, but he was not somebody... Um, who I think really sort of thought that putting individual rights at the top of the ledger was the sort of thing that would happen. I did not see in him, nor did he discuss in our class very much, uh, the various kinds of issues associated with the takings clause, where, of course, you know, I have to have a fairly open view on standing, because otherwise I can't declare all these wonderful New Deal statutes unconstitutional. I asked about what year you were in because I figured it was 68, 67, 69. And of course, that was the moment in which Bickle was, his, his public profile turned from defender of the Warren court to critic of the Warren and then Burger court. Yes. And it's overreaches is particularly on issues of, of, uh, of the, the so-called right to privacy, Griswold v. Connecticut. He passed, I guess he passed away right around the time of Roe v. Wade. And in all of that, you saw Bickle calling for a, a limited defense of judicial review, calling in his essays, especially towards the end, calling for a defense of tradition um, and, a, and a light judicial touch. I've been thinking about him a lot the last few months as we got as we approached the other big abortion case, the biggest abortion case, Dobbs. Kind of wondering yes. how Bickle himself would would sort of think through the issues where. 50 years ago, he was a skeptic of, and a critic of everything the court was creating in this right to privacy. Um, but now, with 50 years of precedent on the books, I'd be curious to see how he worked through that component of things. But of course, he's, he's not on the podcast. He doesn't get a vote anymore. Uh, but the case was just argued a, a little over, I guess, two weeks ago uh, as we taped this. Um, we won't get a decision until the beginning of the summer, but... Uh, Richard, any any early thoughts on the on the abortion oral argument? Yeah, well, first let me give an early thought on on Bickle. He was a fascinating creature. Towards the end of his life, um, he became very close friends with Robert Bork. Uh, and you could see a lot of him coming through Bork on, on judicial restraint. Uh, and, but he passed in, in, I guess it was in the fall of 1974, so he never really got the comment on these things. With respect to the Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case, I mean, we know, uh, I think that it's pretty likely that this thing is going to be overturned. The uh, theme that you see on the left uh, was pretty much a, a combination of a defense because of a passionate belief but largely defended, I would say, on stare decisis grounds rather than on the normative underpinnings of the original decision. I think it's weak if they, they would do much better if they could do it on both both lines. That is, to show, well, here's why Roe is collect conceptually. And oh, by the way, it's around for a long time. But I think they gave up on the first one because uh, amongst its, you know, the critics, including you, uh, you can't find anything coherent about the way in which the decision was put together. I think that the truculence, particularly by 
San, Sonia Sotomayor is actually going to backfire. My guess is that uh, it's Roe is certainly gone, whether it's going to be the 15 weeks, which is what the Mississippi statute said, or whether it's going to be taken out entirely, I don't think is very clear. It's clear that you could see somebody saying, look, they didn't ask for the complete abolition of this case when they filed their statute. So we just have to basically uh, approve of the statute, but we don't have to go much further and to say that you could regulate from the time of conception. Uh, I'm I would guess 80% likely that Roe will not survive in its current form. I think given the dynamics of the oral argument, I think, and the kind of take no prisoners attitude that you saw from some of the conservative justices, I think it's more likely they're just going to overturn it. Uh, and there'll be hell to pay, but there'd be a lot of hell to pay if you don't overturn it. I mean, the emotions invested on both sides of this case are extremely intense. I'm actually somebody who's relatively less intense about the decision because I think both the weakness of the case and its durability way, and they cut in opposite directions, so it slows me down a little bit. But you're a champion, aren't you? You want to overturn Roe? Well, I definitely want to see Roe overturned uh, and Casey. I'll be curious to see how much of it happens in this case. I mean, I listened in to the oral arguments a couple of times myself, and I was struck by a number of the justices who I thought seemed at oral argument even more inclined to roll back row than I might have anticipated. I think that's right. The crux of the case, of course, is is not just the question of whether Roe was right or wrong, but how much of Roe and Casey, if you, if you conclude that Roe and Casey were wrong, then the question is how much of them, of those precedents should be rolled back or needs mm-hmm. to be rolled back in order to decide this case. And we talked a lot about Chief Justice Roberts earlier. And, and here at, in the Dobbs case, I think he's important too. Over and over again, he was asking, how much do we need to do to decide this case? And he was asking this of both sides. or He, he certainly asked it of the challengers to the Mississippi yes, law when they were arguing that, you know, getting rid of, of, of Roe and Casey <clears throat> or just ruling a favor of Mississippi would, op- would, would, would validate any number of laws that are much stricter than Mississippi's law. Roberts kept bringing it back to, no, this is the 15-week standard, and, and how much is really lost yes. when we move from, say, 20 weeks of viability, uh, or whatever the viability yeah. line is, 24, to 15 25. weeks. And I'll be very, I, I still would not be surprised if we saw, not say, three opinions in the case, you know, a, a conservative opinion, a progressive opinion, and something in the middle, all kind of reminding us of Casey. But the, these questions of precedent are so prudential and so nuanced, I I would not be surprised to see multiple concurrences or concurrences in the judgment that by individual justices, um, say Barrett, Kavanaugh, Roberts, um, maybe even others, uh, thinking through precisely how far they need to go in this case. Because what's your prediction? I don't expect the court to affirmatively say in this case there is no constitutional right to abortion, even in cases where the, the, the life of the mother... Oh, no. They're not going there. No, they're not going there. But I'd say if they were to announce that Roe and Casey are totally null and void, there's a strong... that They're in effect saying that, or they're putting the burden on future litigants to try to litigate their way back towards those sorts of protections. Well, I, I disagree. With the, the, Mississippi, the Mississippi statute has an exception for the life. No, I, no, I know. That's why. I, well, exactly, Richard. And that's why I think they. I'll still be surprised 
if, pleasantly surprised if they go so far as to totally renounce Roe and Casey, because I think the court is going to have to find its way step by step to that crucial hard case of a right in the case of the the the, the mother's life, the woman's life being in danger. And I think I, I, that they will they will make their way to that question over time, and not in this case. Well, I disagree. I think the first thing that's going to come if they want to overrule Roe is they're going to essentially accept probably three exceptions to it right now. One is the life of the mother. The other is the defective mongoloid Down syndrome child. And the third would probably be the case of rape. Um, I don't believe they're going to change any of those things. I think they're really going to go after abortion at will rather than abortion for cause. As to which of the two stands they're going to take, I'm just not very sure. Uh, What Justice Roberts, Chief Justice, tried to do was to say, well, is viability part of the holding in Roe v. Wade? And I think he didn't help his cause very much because so clearly it was essential to the way in which Judge Black does as Blackman thought about it, to sort of try to reinvent history and saying it was just a kind of an aside or a casual set of remarks uh, gets it wrong. The trimester was the feature that more than anything else uh, had constitutional scholars on the other side up in arms. It was the kind of thing I think that motivated John Ely when he started to talk about the wages of crying wolf in the Supreme Court cases. So I don't think that's going to be the issue. I think the issue is going to be, do they go to 15 or do they go to zero? And I, I think there's going to be divided. So if you go one by one, uh, Thomas, I think, would just start all over again and get rid of the whole thing. Uh, I think Alito is probably in the same position. Gorsuch, he's always been, as far as I'm concerned, something of an intellectual wild card. So I can't predict what he's going to do. Barrett, I think, will go the whole way, if I had to make a guess. A Kavanaugh, not sure, but probably. Roberts is the one person I'm reasonably confident who will try to look for a, re, a middle position on the timing issue. That's what I think. I've been thinking lately that, that maybe the best evidence that there's a God and he has a sense of humor is the fact that he put Barrett, uh, the, who spent her entire career studying the nuances of precedent, stare decisis, yeah. um, putting her on the court at this exact moment um, yeah and replacing ruth Bader ginsburg right yeah yeah i mean you're talking about judicial opposites on these things these two uh start to come out that way but look we're not going to have time to talk about anything else and probably (laughs) most people won't have time to talk about anything else Uh, but in the end uh, uh what we're going to do is to see that it's just we will learn one lesson yet over again it's the same lesson we learned about standing you make fundamental mistakes at an early stage, they get ingrained into the system. It becomes very, very difficult to figure out, A, whether you continue down the same line, or B, whether you try to reverse course, and C, if you do decide to reverse course, uh, which particular course do you then want to take? And our dialogue essentially has followed all these three things, and in the end, uh, as you said, everything starts to splinter by the time you get to the third of these kinds of situations. Uh, This is, I think, why it is that law is such an interesting business and such a frustrating one, uh, because what happens is we can have reasonable agreements, I think, on first principles. We tend to have much more disagreements on what it is we're supposed to do if we think that in some previous case uh, the first principles were not properly applied. And both you and I agree that the road decision was something of an intellectual travesty. Yeah. Well, I, I, it certainly was. I hope uh, to see it go away sooner rather than later. Um, 
I always have a sympathy for a court that decides it's going to make decisions on a smaller basis rather than a larger basis because often they get it wrong and I'd rather see them make small mistakes than large mistakes. Um, but we're going to have but a this long case, time. No, but, no, come on. In this case, you would go the whole way, wouldn't you, Adam? Oh, as, as somebody who thinks Roe was wrong, I, I certainly would love to see it. I don't know how how the judges are going to decide this, and I'm, I'm, I'll be curious to see what they say in terms of how far to pare back the precedents. I just really don't know, Richard. And, and again, it's, it's I, given that the task before the court is both to declare what the Constitution means and then to decide as a prudential matter how far they need to cut to decide this case, I've, I'm, I have no idea what they're going to do. And if they end up paring back the Roe precedent 80%, but leave untouched for now, sort of a lingering part of it, I can certainly respect that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the 15-week stuff will yeah. satisfy most conservatives, but it will outrage all progressives. And, and by the way, that last, uh, again, I, I always try to proceed this uh, with just to reiterate, even believing Roe was totally wrong, I think the issue about cases where a mother's life is in danger, those will be fascinating if it ever reaches the court, because I think the that raises a number of issues involving right to life-saving medical care and other things that conservatives and libertarians would be sympathetic towards. And I think the, oral, the briefing and oral argument in that case would be fascinating. And one of the benefits of the court rolling back row a few steps at a time is that we can argue and debate and think very clearly and very specifically about each stage of this uh, because sometimes the bigger the argument gets the, the 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 worse it gets i'm all for arguing from first principles and that's where you always have to start but the work of the court again is not to sort of issue <laughs> views in the abstract but to decide real cases and that entails a number of prudential judgments that are just very hard uh, to, to sort of quarterback from the sidelines. Well, I know you have to run, but on that last point, at least, I would say um, amen. Uh, trying to unravel past mistakes is much more difficult than trying to get it right the first time. Sure. <laughs> well, hopefully we didn't make too many mistakes in this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure we did. <laughs> <laughs> but always a pleasure to be here. Happy Great. New Year. Happy holidays. To- and, and to you. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Well, see you next year. Well, see see you next year, and and, uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. See you all next year on a podcast. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.